call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Welcome to episode 75 of Call It Friend of the podcast, where usually two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself, Angie J. Ritchie, and my co-host, Danica Tiernan, watch the new Viking epic from director Robert Eggers, The Northman. As always, the podcast contains spoilers for the film right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. You can find us on Instagram at CallItFriendOfPodcast. Drop us a line there if any feedback or recommendations, please. And we're motherfucking live. We are. We're live. We're back. We're back again. Doing it a, is episode 75. Yeah, doing a victory lap after the glorious Sean Baker episode last week. Yeah, Sean Baker was a big fan, <laughs> I imagine. Hell yeah. Well, I was. I like. You loved it. I don't know. I still listen like, <laughs> I still listen to this podcast every week, you know what I mean? I was like, God damn, that's a good podcast. <laughs> I suppose it might have been because I listened to a bunch of other ones about Sean Baker in the intervening, and I was like, man, an interview with Sean Baker would have slotted perfectly into what we did there. That was cool. Oh, and both of us, this week we do have one podcast recommendation for anyone who enjoyed the Sean Baker episode last week. Yes. Both of us listened to uh, Sam Marill and, and my good, good Facebook friend, Mark Norman's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, what's it called? We Might Be Drunk. We Might Be Drunk, yeah. And they interviewed Simon Rex. And Simon Rex seems like the best guy ever. He's not at all Mikey Sabre. Yeah, no, no, no. He just seems... Well, he is. He's, he's, he's equally charming, but... It, without the, all the bad stuff but it made me just it sounds so stupid to say it just made me appreciate what a good actor he is even more so because i was like and not because oh because he's pretending to be somebody else it's just like you you realize what what like a laid-back kind of what's at the same time sort of intense person he is that he, yeah he kind of took the he took the craft of the performance really really seriously and really made the character something you know there's so many little idiosyncrasies to the character that you just know were well thought out and yeah excellent i don't know like the thing is it's such a singular performance on the on that podcast they were saying oh they expect big things for him in the next few years i probably still wouldn't just because it's kind of so singular i don't know how else to put it i don't know like where else you could sling him really but i would like to see him in more things I think he'll get chances. He's going to get cast and stuff, maybe indie stuff, people like Sean Baker. Maybe he could be in some Robert Eggers period piece. Who knows? Hell yeah. I would love to see him in a Robert Eggers period piece. So eventually we're going to be talking about Robert Eggers and his films, in particular The Northman, yes. which uh, which recently came out. But before that, as always, I guess we should go through some of the stuff that we've been watching. What have you been watching? The film that we were to watch for the podcast this week, I actually went to the cinema to see it twice so much I enjoyed Ooh. it. So there you are now. Pretty and then despite, despite sort of saying I would watch The Lighthouse, I didn't get around to watching that. But I have seen that twice also. So I'll just say the other stuff. I, watched- I did. Uh, I'll just say I also watched The Lighthouse for the first time because I felt it would be rude not to. Yes. And I'm well-mannered. Indeed. Well, I mean, I got my well-mannered out of the way when it came out in the cinema. So there. And as I'll as we'll discuss later, I'm very sad that I missed that opportunity. Yeah, it was quite a thing. But anyway, I so besides that, I just watched a, a buttload of TV and one movie. I'll start with the movie. I continued with the Malik uh, rewatch. I watched the Thin Red Line. Ah, the old Guadalcanal action. Yes. All right. So the Thin Red Line is. I mean, it's exactly as excellent as everybody says. I don't think anybody can, it do, does uh, voiceovers quite like 
Terence Malick because I find voiceovers like annoying a lot of the time. I know you love them, but I find I find I love a voiceover. I don't care if it's poetic and lyrical or if it's just telling me the plot. I love them all. Yeah, well, like he does them well, even though there's a <laughs> there's a funny part where um, Big Jim Big Jim Caviezel asks, uh, "Why am I here?" And I just said to the screen, "Pearl Harbor." Uh, <laughs> what is this thing? What Pearl, is this you, you were attacked. You were attacked. Don't you remember? Um, Why did they attack us? <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I just happened to notice that I had three hours free on a Saturday, and I was like, "Oh fuck!" I could watch. <laughs> I could watch the Thin Red Line, and I won't get disturbed by a wife or a baby. So I dove right in. Um, it is fucking awesome from the start. The uh, the the parts where uh, G- old Big Jim, who I listened to a podcast about recently, and he is crazy, can be confirmed. He's just hanging out in an island and then he gets pulled in as a deserter by Sean Penn and blah, 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 blah. I suppose the really cool thing about it is when you contrast it against something like Saving Private Ryan, you know, where you've got like, you know, Tom Hanks has a story that nobody knows and, you know, you got Vin Diesel dying with the letter, handing it out and Barry Pepper's the sniper. It's very much a constructed thing. Whereas it's massively to the Thin Red Lion's credit that it is not that all these famous actors, who, by the way, if you read the making of the film, it's just nuts. Just like Sean Penn was saying, I'll just show up and work for a dollar. I don't care. Everybody wanted to be in the movie, you know? Yeah. And he just uses people sparingly here and there. George Clooney is in it for less than a minute, I'm convinced, at the end. What was Malick's most recent film before Thin Red Line? Um, it was Days of Heaven. So that's like... Almost a twenty-year gap or something. Yeah, I something like that. Yeah, yeah, twenty-year, twenty-year absence, I believe. Um, and here's the thing: if you listen, if you listen to this, uh, I, I got quite into the making of it as well uh, after w- having watched it. So he got hired to uh, adapt the book, The Thin Red Line, like two or three years after he made Days of Heaven, right? So early eighties. Okay, he turned in his first draft of the script in the late 80s, in 89, I believe, right? And then if it, like, scouted locations in the, like, mid-90s and eventually got to filming in 1998. Over the course of that pre-production, the producers paid for his house in Paris, right? <laughs> Bought him, a, like, a townhouse in Paris. A bunch of other stuff, like like, just mad caveats, like holidays and, like, research periods. They gave him so much money, right? And then when he eventually settled on his locations, got it, got his cast together, was ready to go shooting, these two boys who had shepherded it from start from the early 80s, right? They were greeted with a clause that Malik had put into the contract, banning the producers from set. Respect. Un- I like his work ethic. What the cojones of that? And the thing is, is like, okay, he made a beautiful, amazing film. There's one, there like, so much of the action is chaotic and you don't know what's actually happening. And then there's one piece of action like this flanking maneuver on a bunker at the top of a hill that is chaotic but really well done and actually like it's not done in an action movie way it's just you could like it's shot really well this soldier gets a just a real shot of adrenaline to him and just goes ah and just chucks a bunch of grenades and and that's that and yeah near the end when Jim Caviezel bites it is another great action scene but again it's just pure purely chaotic yeah, I did think it was amazing. He definitely wouldn't have gotten to make a movie like this if there had been producers on set, so uh, fair play. Next up is The New World. Oh, I watched that during lockdown a couple of years ago for the first time. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I have nothing but good memories Classic. of it. I'm looking forward to getting back to it. And yeah, you just need to make sure you watch the extended director's cut. I will be watching that. 
And then you see, then I'll rewatch the Tree of Life, and then I've got the three auto, uh, auto well, the, the other shy, the three biographical films that are apparently not great. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen any of those, but yeah, I hear they're not great. To the Wonder and Night of Cups and Song to Song. What do you got? Well, I already mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, I watched Utopia season one of the Channel Four dark comedy conspiracy drama, which ran for two seasons from twenty thirteen to twenty fourteen. It was can it was cancelled about a group of people who are all fans of the same graphic novel, which is revealed to be a manuscript depicting the evil plans of a shadowy hidden network. The group finds himself pitched in a battle to stop the potential eradication of humanity. And it stars a bunch of familiar faces from the UK TV and cinema scene, such as Paul Higgins, mm. a.k.a. Jamie from The Thick of It, In the Loop, The Angriest Man in Scotland, and Ben Wheatley uh, favorite Neil Maskell yes, as the mouth-breathing Arby. <laughs> All that noise going on the whole time. That's- Stephen Ray, Simon McBurney, yeah. Amelia Jones. What were you going to say? Did you only watch the first season? I only watched the first season, so no spoilers beyond that. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just remember this show took me completely by surprise, and I was fucking blown away by it. It's one of... I can't think of a more violent TV show, quite honestly. It's terrifyingly There's violent. One of the... Like the third or fourth episode of season one features a school shooting oh, in a yeah. primary school. <laughs> Which uh, came under fire, unsurprisingly, because it's pretty mad to just have uh, a guy walking around primary school executing children. But you see, the thing is that I loved so much about this show is eventually all the hyperviolence makes sense from yeah. in the context of what the bad guys are trying to achieve. They have to be completely ruthless. That's, that's it. Yeah, th- I mean, this is my kind of show, apart from the violence, the darkness of it, the imagination, it's imaginative, original. The music. It really, yeah, the music is really sort of upbeat, drum and bass <laughs> type stuff going on. It's pretty cool. Uh, but it resonates with modern conspiracy theories, particularly yes. with, <laughs> when Actually, you look yeah. at all the stuff that came up during COVID, you're like, whoa, you could see that this is, uh, there's a lot of people who go down this type of path. Yeah. Maybe they have a graphic novel that we haven't seen. Who knows? Yeah, what what's the name of the what's the name of the Middle Eastern character who gets tortured? Uh, I like you that you call him Middle Eastern because I mean he's clearly a British, a British. I think he's a, okay of, of Middle Eastern a, descent. There, there we go. That's better. Or of Asian uh, he's descent. Wilson. He's called Wilson Wilson. Yes, right. Yeah, because Adil Akhtar. I'm I'm using the spoon now, Wilson. That fucking scene. You know the <laughs> the scene where he gets tortured. It's yeah. hilarious and horrifying all at once. Oh my god, something else. How is season two? Because the reason I kind of put Utopia off for years is it's because got it got cancelled. Season two is cancelled. Ke- season two is great, actually. Really like. The, the story moves along, evolves, you get like get to new places. It leaves the only problem is it does legitimately uh, like I'd love to see the final season of this. There was only supposed to be three and it got axed. And I would fucking love to see the final season like Is there like uh like is there enough resolution? Or do you are you left at the end of season two going, uh No, there's a bit of resolution at the end of season two. There are. I'll it, take it. Some some things Yeah, like the thing is it's so good you should watch it. Apparently, the American remake with John Cusack and Rain Wilson was awful and got cancelled after one season. Yeah. But it also came out at the same time as, like, 
COVID was just breaking out, which is hilarious. But also, they, they had a really good creative team on that at the start, and it kind of fell apart. Like, David Fincher was supposed to be stewarding that one. And then he, yeah, that would have made way more sense. Right? But I suppose he's, you know, famously uh, quite tough to work with. He's good. He's too good. Mm. He's too good for that. Anyway, I will eventually get around to Utopia Season 2. What else did you watch? You were watching some TVs? All TVs. Uh, yeah, mm. I watched um, I watched trashy David E. Kelly uh, rape courtroom drama Anatomy of a Scandal. Oh, yeah. With uh, Sienna Miller and Rupert Friend. Michelle Dockery as well is in it. Right. So I really enjoyed this to a point. I thought it, like there's one or two plot moves that are just out of control ridiculous. But I suppose given how sort of fro- it's very upfront about how frothy and trashy it's going to be. So the, uh, that particular plot move included, you can't really be too mad at it. But there's some really interesting things in it. Characters, when they're giving testimony in court, for example kind of living in their memories and it's shot in a really interesting way where suddenly they'll flash back to the courtroom but it doesn't look silly it looks very seamless and cool i quite liked that and i also just for how trashy it was it sort of uses that as a vehicle to really i don't know really convey how difficult it is to prosecute rape because the thing is we as an audience are we are not sure that the rape happened and the evidence sort of stacks up and we learn things about his past and we realize that maybe it did, but at the same time, based on the evidence they have, it, it is very difficult to prosecute. So it's really, really quite interesting for that. And you know what? I think the, the writers were trying to make that kind of a stealthy point in it, which is not probably not, like, it's not, a, it's not a popular thing to say. The popular thing to say is so few people get convicted. But the unpopular thing is to say is like, yeah, it's really, really difficult to prove. So like, are you saying that in general, there's more of a, a feeling that like the courts don't care or the... Yeah, that's the that's a, right. that's a narrative that's pumped out a lot. As opposed to it's just really difficult. It's really, really difficult to, pro- to, to get beyond mm-hmm. a reasonable doubt like, yeah. Is this worth watching then? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, I, I'll say yes. Like I flew through it. I would say, I would say it is worth watching. Um, it's not to the heights of... That gritty gr- British crime procedural that has been coming out in the last few years, it's not that. It's something different. It's about mm. relationships, life in the public eye, and rape. And there's like references to, you know, um, the likes of the Bullington Club and cunts like that, mm. which, you know, is though cuntish are interesting to me. As the, Just that such actual bastards exist is interesting. Who is Rupert Friend again? Uh, Rupert Friend, he's really good in it, I'll tell you that. One interesting thing is it's like him, Sienna Miller is doing a very serious performance and she's very good in it. Rupert Friend is like almost comically villainous. Uh, Let's see, Rupert Friend. He's got like, he has got that kind of bastard name. (laughs) Like Rupert Friend. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sounds like a bad guy, even, you know, despite having the name Friend. He'll gen- he does generally kind of go for comically villainous. He was um, he was Stalin's son in the death of Stalin. Very good oh, nice. in that. Um, he was he was a Nazi in the Boy in the Striped Pajamas. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, that kind of thing. I see what his agent is on. Yeah, that kind of thing. Anyway, what else you got? Well, continuing the COVID theme. Now that COVID is essentially done, at least here in Europe. I heard that. Shanghai, yeah. Sorry for you, but. Uh, I've been wondering when we'll start getting the narrative COVID features. I'm not talking about the lockdown type fare, but something about virus outbreak, people confused as to what's happening. Because I think there's an interesting story to be told in there somewhere. 
maybe of like outbreak in China and then people in the north of Italy going like, you know, what the hell is happening? Well, the real so in interesting case, story that I would hope yeah. will not be told by like in an Adam McKay kind of way, because I'm kind of through with that. I'm finished <laughs> after um, Don't Look Up. But uh, your man Fauci is such a fucking interesting character. If the, like if if people were ever if it, if studios ever felt up for committing to exploring that via narrative fiction, that would be interesting. Like the fact that, you know, he had all this money invested in that lab over there for gain of function. Re- I don't know. It's he's an interesting character. I I think that would be good. Anyway, continue. Well, I'll leave your utopia uh, manuscripts to one side. <laughs> uh, I recently rewatched the daddy of the clinical virus response films, Steven Soderbergh's 2011 film Contagion. That's excellent, isn't it? This was like my fourth or fifth time watching it. The previous time was in March 2020, just before the first lockdown. Like many people, I watched all the virus films just before COVID hit the UK. I, I watched Outbreak. 28 Days Later, Philadelphia, all the big ones, Fauci. <laughs> but Contagion is the one that absolutely nails it. Oh, uh, yeah. It follows Gwyneth Paltrow returning from a business trip to Hong Kong with a bit of the old flu when she gets back bit to her husband. Bit of the old husband, floozy, I'd Mad say. Yeah, well, she, says she, makes some, she made some choices. She had to live with them. Not very long. Uh, she starts <laughs> feeling worse and worse and eventually collapses. She's taken to hospital and almost immediately dies. Shortly after, we see the pathologist cutting the top of her skull open to perform the autopsy. And that's when you know this film isn't fucking about. It's Soderbergh showing a realistic portrayal of what would happen. And you've got an all-star cast, Kate Winslet, Brian Cranston, Judifer Law, Lawrence Fishburne, oh, yeah, Marion Cotillard. Cast. Yeah, like everyone. It's all it's big people all the way through it. The thing is, like... Jude Law's COVID great, is, isn't he, as the piece of shit... Uh, yeah, piece speak. of shit selling his bullshit homeopathic remedy. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the thing, though. Like, pre-COVID just seemed like a realistic what-if scenario. But if you've watched this, I would recommend to anyone if they... Because, like yeah. I said, I checked it out the last time just before COVID. Watching it again now, it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> You're like, is this utopia? <laughs> is this all planned out? But the reason for that is just because like Soderbergh and his uh, his his co-writer or writer Scott Z Burns worked with the uh, World Health Organization to you know find out what what would actually happen in that scenario. And and in the film, it's like it's a virus that has like a twenty five to thirty percent mortality rate. Yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very realistic. Apparently, the uh, UK government, after watching the film, that was part of their reason to buy more vaccine doses than they would ever need. Because huh. what happens in the film is just like, you know, world governments are scrambling to get all the doses that they need. And mm. there's like a lottery system and people have to, they're pulling numbers, out of like a like a lottery thing to see who's going to get the, the vaccine when. Yeah, but it's such a fun film. It's like it's extremely propulsive. Soderbergh on top form. You've got this ominous Cliff Martinez score that's pulsing throughout it. It's one of those films I could just put on and watch any time and never get bored. Have you ever seen like this is his is his, his other uh, journey into the world of medicine? Have you ever seen The Nick? No, it's, 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 I don't really like uh, doctor or hospital shows. Huh? Give me a virus, yes, but I don't like this. Is a this is a twist on that? I would say. This when is it set? Like uh, the 19th turn century? Of the, turn of the 20th? early yeah. 20th century uh, in New York. And Clive Owen just being an insane cocaine-addicted doctor uh, experimenting with different uh, remedies. He performs surgery nice. on himself at one point. It's fucking nuts. But it's shot like just... It's one of the best shot TV series I've ever seen. And that's the thing. is like, you kind of like... 
You gotta love. I don't know. Am I understating it a little here? But you, you gotta love Steven Soderbergh's can-do attitude. It's like what? Direct an entire TV show? Yeah, sure. Why not? You know. I thought he was going to retire. He he's retired twice now and come back. Is he is he retired again or is he still doing stuff? No, he's still he's still doing stuff now. He what a drama queen. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. He released a, a like a bunch of film, like at least two films in the last year. I haven't seen either of them. I must do. They're both on HBO Max anyway. One with uh, Zoe Kravitz. Yeah, and... uh, Yeah, what else? Well, the other thing I was going to say is... uh, What an ending, Contagion. Like, what an ending. What, like showing you what happened? Yeah, just... Yeah, it it goes back to that kind of Soderbergh chronology thing of, uh, you know, putting scenes in different places. And yeah, we get to see the origin of the virus. It's just it's just COVID. Some COVID stuff. A a bat a pig ate a bat ate a fucking whatever. Some chef wiped his fingers with his arse and put them into <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow's mouth. I don't know. I mean I may be filling in some blanks there, but that's what happened. She shakes hands with a chef. She's like, Oh, yeah. that was a good meal. Please kill me. <laughs> well, I watched um I, like I was in the world of medicine as well. I watched uh, the adaptation of Adam Kay's memoir from his time in the NHS. This is going to hurt with uh, Ben Whishaw. Adam Kay also wrote uh, all the scripts. Now I watched this week to week with my wife. In it, he's a specialized. Um, he specialized in uh, obstetrics and gynecology. So there's a whole lot of baby stuff. And without going into too much details on the podcast, the birth of my daughter was a hardcore experience. So so I've heard. So basically, this was edge of your sheet stuff for me. Like, really. We watched it week to week, and I don't think I could have watched more than one episode at a time. Really. It's just so fucking hardcore. Particularly, like, this in the second last episode has an ending that will floor you. It's funny, too. They break the fourth wall. There's a very funny scene where he's told to get a urine sample, and he comes back with a cum sample. And, like, it's... Respect. It's based on a memoir, and I, I actually piss cum. And I'd imagine, <laughs> I'd, ima- I'd imagine, like an awful lot of the little, small, little, incidental, weird stuff in it actually happened. And it also has a twist in like episode four, like nothing I've ever really seen before, to be honest. Because it's not a twist of an incident or a reveal. It's revealed that because we've been given the story from the perspective of a certain character, we actually haven't been seeing it clearly. And then we just need to hear the sort of rant of another character to realize, oh, yeah, that's totally fucked up. But because we like, and it's really just so effective. Um, So not by a reveal of somebody doing something dastardly, but by somebody just like having a go at somebody and you suddenly see the story clearly. It's It's like the NHS last duel. There you go, exactly. It's the it's the the last jewel of the NHS. What else have you got? Well, uh, to find a companion piece to go along with the Northman, I wanted to to find some sort of historical epic or mm. with fantasy elements. So I went for something that you've watched before and talked about. Oh, David yeah. Lowry's The Green Knight. Oh right, from okay. last year. Yeah, I loved that. I was thinking about his that adaptation this week, actually. of his adaptation of Sir Garwin Gawain. And, and The Green Knight, the 14th century chivalric romance by Anonymous in their pre-ethical hacking days. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it tells the story of Sir Gawain, played by Dev Patel, who takes up the challenge of old Chris Finch, The Green Knight, to enter into a game to strike a blow on the mysterious knight before having the blow returned in a year. 
when Garwin cuts off the Green Knight's head, only for the knight to pick it up and walk off. Garwin realizes he is somewhat fucked. <laughs> How iconic of a character is Chris Finch that it's defined that guy's career? It's Finchy. He's Finchy. Yeah, Finchy yeah. from The Witch, from The Northman. <laughs> yeah, Finchy's in The Northman. I saw his face right. in The Northman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Finchy, had, he was a Green Knight as well. So he's, he's really branching out. So I was talking to somebody this week who actually hated the Green Knight, and I remember really liking it. It made me thinking, well, was I wrong? So this is handy for me. Was I wrong? Yeah, well, so what I follows a, from this, the start of this game, what follows is a, a real morality play, a classic tale of chivalry and remaining true to oneself and stoic in the face of temptations on the path. And I, I, I understand that. I get it. It mm. makes sense to me. Great performances all around. Dev Patel's the man. Amazing how far he's come from the, the young boy, the young man in Slumdog Millionaire. Now he's basically an action star. Yeah, he's excellent uh, in this. Alicia Vikander does a passable northern accent, which is fun to hear, given that she's what Danish or whatever, so good on her. Sean Harris on top creepy whisper form. <laughs> Barry Keoghan being guy. a wee shite bag. Yeah, but Sean Harris still doesn't matter. He's the king. He could be good, bad. He can be whatever, but he can't not be hide creepy. the fact that he's got like a Tom York face and this yeah, <laughs> this little whisper voice. And yeah, like I said, Barry Keoghan being a shite bag. Oh, what always, a shite bag! Yeah, to be. perfectly a cast. Knobhead. There's nobody else yeah, who could great. have played that. <laughs> Perfect knobhead. He gets to be Irish for this one as well. Gets to do that, so that's nice. And then Joel Edgerton trying to get wanked off <laughs> yeah. by Sir Garwin. <laughs> What's, what's not to love? And actually, cum, actual cum does make an appearance in the story. Is it actual cum? It Has that like, been verified? I don't know. If well, it looks you, like You know it. what I mean. <laughs> yeah, we do see some cum. Uh, yeah, you know, if yeah, there's, sm if there's smoke, for this, there's cum. That's what I always say. Yeah, there's spoilers for this, but Dev, Dev Patel does get wanked off. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's basically, that's the film. Uh, this this film costs fifteen million dollars. It's classic A twenty four indie territory. It looks great. It looks amazing. Compared incredible. to the Northman, yeah. though, you can see what the difference in budget can allow a filmmaker to do. I mean, this for David Lowry, it feels like the type of thing that Robert Eggers was doing pre the Northman in terms of sure. budget and scope and scale. Um, I yeah, I I really liked it. I found it interesting. I think the like chivalric nature of it it makes you. Yeah, the, the character is learning lessons and at the same time as a viewer you're kind of going like yeah i probably shouldn't be a knobhead either <laughs> <laughs> i should probably not be a dickhead yeah. I'm, I'm learning lessons it's not too late to learn i'm learning from a 14th century poem or whatever well, still, what's quite interesting about it is, like, again, comparing it to the Northman is, and I, I think I said this at the time, the Green Knight leans into being set in storyland. This is not yeah. real. This is a story. It, they, like every yeah, because everyone is on board with a guy like with a cabbage for a head coming in and challenging them to a fight. Yeah, and also, I mean, I don't know, just the colors and the like. Everything looks like an illustration, almost. You know, isn't that just because it's set in Ireland? Well, I think the Ireland is Storyland. Yes, Ireland is Storyland. That's correct. Is it set mm -hmm. in Ireland? It's probably filmed there. I'm sure it is. Film is filmed in Ireland. Yeah. I don't think it's supposed to be Ireland, but it's it's filmed there. I, I need like to watch more David Lowry films. Uh, I've put a couple up for a toss before, but I think I'm going to start working through one a week at some point. I should. 
He's very good. Even the film that I don't like of his is still interesting. You don't like uh, Ghost Story, right? I fucking hated Ghost Story. Uh, I don't think I've seen... This is the worst thing is like, I always think like, oh, David Lowry, that's a filmmaker that I like. And I don't think I've seen any of his other films. (laughs) There you go. He's an interesting interview as well. They passed me by. Ain't Them Body Saints. Pete Dragon. I put up for a toss. Ghost Ghost Story I haven't watched. Old Man and the Gun as well. I've seen that. I haven't got around to yet. And this next thing that's coming out is Peter Pan and Wendy, which is going to be released directly onto Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I've seen three then. I've seen um, Ain't Them Body Saints, The Green Knight. Oh, no, four. The Green Knight, Ghost Story. And Ghost Story. And uh, The Old, Old Man, Man and the Gun. Gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm most of the way through his all his... I've seen everything except his Disney bollocks. There you are now, David Lowry. Even though Pete's Dragon well, is I supposed think, to be good. That's what I think. I think Pete's Dragon, despite being... Disney bollocks, as you say. I think that'll be good. You could watch it with your daughter. Yes, and Maybe I it's scary. I will. So I, the, the, I watched two series, uh, and actually, this wasn't collectively over the week. This was like, yeah, yeah I watched um, pretty much all of these in the last two weeks. So, and they're both about the tech sector. So this is why I'm naming them in the same breath. And they make good, good. They're good comparative stuff. They also both have Kerry Bichet in them. I watched. So I started the week it came out, super pumped, and then I didn't watch it again until all the episodes had dropped because, I don't know. I understand that. So this is uh, Brian Koppelman and David Levian's um, miniseries about uh, the battle for Uber. Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays Travel uh, Travis Kalanick. I'm going to say Travis Kalanick. And there's Kyle Chandler as Bill Gurley. Uma Thurman as some weird lady. Who Bill was on Gurley? The, yeah, yeah. He was a, a great name. Yeah, I know, right? He's a big investor. Um, and it's just... So first of all, Brian Koppelman and David Levian, I both... Their writing both annoys me and I really appreciate it. It's I find it often distracting how well-versed most people are in in movie lore. Like, everybody knows movies. You know what I mean? Every single situation, they're like, oh, it's like that bit in Casablanca, you know? And it's like, man. I don't know, though. Like, my experience of any time I've traveled in the U.S., people, the average the average U.S. citizen knows way more about movies than someone from other countries, I've found. Mm, okay, fair enough. Yeah, like, just, just like Hollywood stuff, they know way more in general about actors and films. Mm. Whereas people in the U.K. are like, uh. Fair enough, okay. That's something that Quentin Tarantino has often said as well. Is like that's why he brought it into his movies is because his generation was a generation that grew up watching TV and movies, and that was their mm-hmm. that was the, that that was their way of connection and how they spoke. Okay, fair enough. Speaking of Tarantino, he actually bizarrely narrates this show. It is I I don't know. It's re- it's really compelling viewing, is what I would say. It's a really interesting story. It's difficult to to tell where. The writers stand on the characters, particularly Travis Kalignick. It's undeniable they admire him a bit, but he's also undeniable, a t- un- undeniably a total shitebag. It does a really good job of depicting um, what was famous at the time, the sort of, uh, you know, all the sexual harassment going on at, at Uber and what made it a very uncomfortable work environment and tech bros and all of that stuff. But also, it, what it really has, I suppose, is... I mean, the the show is about, in the best possible light, people who want to make an impact on the world. Like, really, that's everybody's goal, is to just... Nobody's really that interested in being a billionaire, even though they're all fucking billionaires. Everybody wants to change the world. And, like, I've read... I've read books about people like, people like this, particularly. Like, this sort of shit interests me. I'm actually... I, I'm planning to read the nonfiction book on which this is based. So... 
I I got along really, really well with this show in the end, just because it would interest me. I don't know would it be for everybody. There's a lot of jargon that goes around that if you you would have to pause and Google what certain things mean. But I mean, it's just a world I'm interested in, so I was able to engage with it quite well. Generally, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is fantastic as a shite bag. I've never seen him as a shite bag before. Does it well? Like I'm trying to think of a yeah, I don't remember any shite bag performances. But generally speaking, this would get the recommend from me. Not quite so much though as the other tech world-based show I watched. I watched series one of Halt and Catch Fire. Have you seen this? What is that again? Now this is one that has been on my radar for quite a while, and everything you'll read about it says that the the first series gets off to a bit of a shaky start, and then it it goes up and up and up from there, and the fourth season is just amazing and made it one of the best shows of the of the decade. Now, so this is this it's a period drama. It's basically like nine like Mad Men with computers. It's about um, the personal computer revolution of the nineteen eighties and up to the growth of the internet in the nineteen nineties. It starts in nineteen eighty three, takes you to nineteen ninety five. Okay. So, and it stars Lee Pace, Scoot McNary, Mackenzie Ooh. Davis, Kerry Bichet, all, all the hits. Yeah, yeah. It's got a good cast. And it's in, it's, it has a really interesting origin story because the guys who, who wrote it, uh, Christopher Cantwell and Christopher Rogers, they, they basically wrote the pilot as a way to get them into the TV writing world. They had never... Uh, and they grew, Like a spec script type thing. Yeah, they had never expected to be end up making this. They thought this would get them an agent or something. But AMC mm-hmm. was AMC picked it up. I suppose Mad Men was really, really in its stride at this time. Or maybe Mad Men was finished and they were looking for something else. Because it is very... Like, Lee Pace is a Don Draper type character, no question. But as it goes, it's much the same in the appeal of Super Pumped. It's like people that they really just want to make an impact on the world. They want to change things. And as well, I'm like... Just from reading Walter Isaacson's book on Steve Jobs, I'm like I'm very interested in in him particularly, but that world in the '80s. And this does a very good job of just showing what sort of cowboys were getting into it. Like this was like this would be uh, this is all set in Texas, which was Silicon Valley light basically. But like guys were trying to get into computers, and they really had the ethics and business tactics of like a Civil War general. Uh, I think it was. Um, Nathan Bedford Bedford Forrest who says who said you need to just get there fastest with the mostest and that was that's kind of what this is is like people stealing each other's ideas and just trying to sell the machines first but yeah and it what it is a bit like you I was watching going on Mad Men Light but then by the last two episodes I was going oh fuck yeah they, this will this will get really really good as they move into the have you watched the entire thing or just the first just season? the first series. Mm-hmm. And I am going to stick to my guns on my old bullshit and uh, not watch the second series yeah, for a while. Play. But um, yeah, I re- you don't want to go full nerd. No, I do not. But I like, but I maintain my position on that. I feel like when you watch too many episodes of a show in succession, it's like you're not watching the show anymore. It's, Has this show finished now? Yeah, yeah. This uh, ran from 2014 to 2017, and wow. it, they got, completely passed me by. Yeah, yeah, and they got yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Um, but it is. Fairly highly acclaimed, particularly the last series. So yeah, this I'll definitely put series two uh, on my own menu a little further down the line. Anything else from you? That's the last of me. No, that's the end for me. As I say, I watched uh, The Lighthouse, but we can get into that now, talking about Mr. Robert Eggers. Hell yeah, what do you know about him? Have you listened to any podcasts or... I've listened to some interviews interviews without Robbie Eggers, yeah. 
Yeah, yesterday I listened to his episode of Marin from last month. Oh, and I listened to a couple of other interviews with him, mainly talking about the Northman, but also turning uh, touching on like his biography and the the witch and the lighthouse. How's his? How's his? He's an uh, interesting guy. How's his Marin interview? Good. He seems a bit more mm, nervous than Sean Baker in general, but yeah, it's it's very interesting. He talks a lot about. Basically, he mentions that he's only interested in period films. He's not going to do anything set in the modern age, and that's largely because he enjoys the process of research. And you can see that mm. when you watch his films. There's great attention to detail. I, I, I'm currently watching Tokyo Vice, the, the HBO Max series well, about Jake Edelstein. He's the first non-Japanese writer at the Yomiuri Shimbun newspaper in Tokyo, and he, he worked at the crime beat, took on the Yakuza. The first episode of that is directed by Michael Mann, and it is sloppy as all hell. It's typical Michael Mann issues. I think we talked about it in our Black Hat episode. It's just like he needs uh, to shoot so much. There's so much ADR mm. because maybe Michael Mann is deaf. I don't know, but the the audio that he shoots on set it just is is, is awful, and he needs to like loop lines. And there's things in this like okay, I mean, I'm I'm enjoying the show, but like in the first episode, it's set in 1999, mm. right? You've got music and scenes playing in the background, like in the scene, the music from like the 2010s. I don't it, really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it is, it's not a major thing, but it's just like no, that it's is so a, fucking sloppy. That is it's a just major lack thing for of me, care. To be honest, that that's a, like it's. That's a big issue for me. It's like, and that's one of the things that that's one of the things that I loved so much about The Witch when it came out, mm-hmm. um, and I was very happy to see that eventually get its reckoning because I remember um, that year when that came out, that was probably my favorite film, and I was singing to the high heavens about it. And eventually, it definitely did get its recognition. And the main thing that just really buzzed me up about it was the cinematography. Is just like everything's dusty and smoky, and you're you're purely transported in it. Like it, it, you're you're back there. That's just how it feels. You know what I mean? And the dialogue as well, the attention to detail with the way people spoke back then, mm-hmm. um, which is like it's it's very interesting. Like you never see that properly done in westerns. Well, you do in the likes of actually Deadwood, despite the fact that they switched in all the curse words because people used to just call each other nitwit back then, but it was a rude thing to say. Did you know that about uh, the Deadwood scripts? I did not know that, cocksucker. Yeah, yeah, that's it. They, 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 all the cocksucker and motherfucker and stuff like that, people didn't say that back then, but they did curse a lot, but in a different well, way. they should have. If only Ian McShane had been alive in those days. But anyway, people, like, people spoke in a way like they were taught to speak. You know what I mean? Like they, like they were taught like grammar and ways to speak in school, and it would come out like that because and the main reason is the upper class people spoke better a lot of the way because they were always around other upper class people who spoke well right whereas lower class people would either not speak much at all or speak in this very you know educated way because they were taught exactly how to say the words but that and anyway that like they they nailed that in the witch the way finchie talks for example but anyway, uh, yeah, you can't imagine, even though Robert Edgars would never set a, f- a film in the present, you can't imagine him fucking up on something like music, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eggers is not very happy with The Witch. And that's really? just because it was his... Yeah, because it was first, his first film. It doesn't match what was in his head. Whereas he said The Lighthouse is exactly what he intended it to be. And on The Northman, he was mixed because he didn't have final cut on that, which we'll get around to eventually. But oh, wow, I did the not know that. The Witch cost four. 
The Witch cost four million, but it made forty. It was it's his his one big big success. I have to say, I think the I I think you're wrong, Robert Eggers. I think the witch is fucking terrific. Still, oh, I you know what's inside his head. Do you? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, maybe I think I could be his producer and give him good notes because I think the witch is right. sick. You should just turn up on set one day. As long as he's not got some kind of Terrence Malick clause, you'll be fine. The witch has, for me, one of the most memorable moments in horror history. I would and I would I would I'll like put it in my top ten. Let's say I'll go as bold as that. The the moment where um basically Satan stands behind her, you know? Oh yeah. Fucking hell. It's incredible. It's so and it's all it is is just some guy in a cloak, probably, but because it's kinda out of focus and then the voice comes in, the voice of Black Philip, it's chilling. Absolutely brilliant. One of the things Eggers said that they had to cut or that they basically <laughs> there's footage of it somewhere, he said, but they tried to get Anya Taylor-Joy to ride the goat into the forest, but basically she was too big or the goat <laughs> was too small. So he, there's like there's video footage somewhere of, of her trying to ride this little goat. And would she have been she in was the nudie? Sh- I don't know. I, in my version, yes. <laughs> but she was going to... yeah. Uh, she was supposed to ride the goat and then I think ride it up into the sky. Which, oh, well, I prefer know. the other ending with all the nudie ladies and then they fly all off. All the nudie ladies dancing yeah. around, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'm so hot on The Witch as you are. I, I know that you really liked it. I don't really even remember what I said about The Witch. I, I talked about it not that long ago, but I liked it well enough, but it's quite, it's, it is such a slow burn. Mm. Listening to Eggers talk in one of his interviews, he said that a lot of the screenplays that he wrote before The Witch were kind of shapeless, and he found that he needed to latch onto a genre in order to get his work out there. So, so horror was what he came to first. Mm. But it is, it's so much more than that, in a way. I mean, it's a horror film, but it's, it is such like a slow burn period drama at the same time. It's, it's trying to bring this kind of yeah. authenticity to the period. And the, the moments of horror are really original. Like when the, when the kids when the, the children kids screaming the children yeah. can't pray that's horrifying yeah. in the oddest manner you know yeah. it touches a new nerve that you didn't really know you were you were scared of it's just creepy if I lost the ability to pray wow <laughs> that would be bad I really like the part where um, they turn the boy into a mouse is that a thing I don't remember that that's from the witches that's from the witches yeah, okay yeah. I thought I thought you were. I was being a clever boy. You were just you were just joshing. What about the lighthouse, Sam? Maybe we can jump to that one. Well, the lighthouse. I mean, so I've seen that twice, both times in the cinema. It, I mean, it's just it's a fabulous film to see in the cinema because it's, it is such a cinematic, yeah, such a cinematic film. I I always said that to people. I was like, like, yeah, you got to see this because the thing is, it's it's just fucking mental. Like, at no point does it begin to take shape, but it builds momentum. Do you get what my meaning? Like, at no point is am I clear on what's actually happening. Yeah, what's happening. But it's leading us to a crescendo at the same time. Yeah, I got that sense. I, I felt after I finished watching it, I was like, I liked that. I don't think I can pinpoint from one viewing. Like, I know there's so much going on that I'm really aware of right now. Again, I haven't had enough time to process The Lighthouse. Mm. I just finished it yesterday. But, yeah, I realize I need to see it again. But, like, the the... The black and white, this boxy aspect ratio that they used. He built a fucking 70-foot-tall lighthouse in Nova Scotia. Mm. The the attention to detail, again, is mad. And then, of course, you've got Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson with fantastic performances. Yeah, The language is, is key. 
there's so many and it's funny as well, which it's is hilarious. A, I'm not. A, <laughs> I'm. A, I'm much more of a fan of the farting in this one rather than that scene from the Northman. That that really that really put me off. Well, we will get to that eventually. But um, yeah, I, I I would love. I will watch the the lighthouse again. I'm sure, and I would love to have had the chance to see it in the cinema. I don't know why I didn't. Well, there you go. Um, and it like seeing the lighthouse a second time informed directly the reason I decided to go see the Northman again. Because I do feel like his films are double watches, all of them. I I think honestly to get the to get the full experience, mm. to get the full experience, you first of all need to experience the plot, know where it's going, and then yeah. and then go back and pick up on the details. That definitely that rings true to me because watching the Northman when we get to that, like mm. the first ten minutes or so, I wasn't a hundred percent on board. Mm. But when it, it clicked into place, when I became assured of what the narrative, when I had a sense of what the narrative was going to be, even though this Amleth story is like one of the oldest, most yeah. well-known stories and formed the basis of like Hamlet. But once I was relaxed enough it's to have a sense of where it was going. Yeah, that's right. It's That's all it is. It's just the Lion King. But um, yeah, once I had a sense of where it was going, I was able to sit back and really enjoy it. But I can imagine for all of these films, a second viewing just being a bit more relaxed in terms of like I don't need to I don't need to be questioning going like what the fuck is going on where's this going I can just absorb each image and I can really sort of pay attention to the 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 depth of language and well in in Northman more the imagery and yeah um, violence with the lighthouse my memory of it was the first time I was genuinely disorientated from it just being so crazy like I walked out of it going and myself and I like I didn't expect like my my wife to love it, but she loved it too. We walked out just going, "What the fuck was that? That <laughs> is it's a an insane movie." And then when I went like I, I going to see it again, that was the main sort of takeaway from it. It was like it's still an insane movie, totally. I didn't f- figure it out anymore exactly, but there is a strange kind of momentum to it that you kind of I eventually just sort of got the feeling, oh, that's what it is. It's kind of the momentum of madness. Call it cabin fever or whatever you like. It's the, like which I some people would say like is probably a a boring way to reduce it down. I would imagine there's other faci- uh, there's other readings of it available, and I'm sure I'll get to them eventually. But I think like front and center is do you know what I mean? Just this odd feeling of fucking going bananas. Should you remember when he beats the bird to death, when he kills the bird? That's (laughs) hilarious as well, by the way. I really enjoyed that. I I really dislike seagulls. Like most people, who likes a seagull? Oh, yeah, fuck seagulls. To see a seagull beaten to death is... That would be a highlight of any film to me. Yeah, yeah. So well done, Arpats, on that one. It was. That was quite good. Uh, Apparently, those seagulls. What happened was they were originally using puppets. Yeah, I but thought they did. one of the pro- one of the producers, maybe an executive producer on the film, is Christopher Columbus, the explorer. <laughs> Christopher Columbus, of course, who famously directed Harry Potter and Home one Alone, of the, one of the Harry Potter films. Yeah, mm. so he had a connection to the owl trainer guys from one of those Harry Potter films. So they got. They got three trained seagulls, and then they shot those against a green screen for some of those scenes. So those so are real. There's, there, are some, there are some trained real seagulls in there somewhere. Not for the beating to death part, but definitely for some of the like standing up to the camera type thing. Mm. It, apparently they were really good. It was, that's a real kind of a, a Harold... It was a Harold Pinter who did uh, The Dumb Waiter. 
Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a real that's a real kind of a Harold Pinter sort of a payoff in that like it's a huge moment but it's so abstract and what, what <laughs> like you know what does it mean? Like like it's like in um yeah, in the dumb waiter where your man goes, "The kettle, you fool." And it's just a it's a moment in the play like for sure, but lord knows what the fuck it is. That's what the the lighthouse seems to be. I also just like it's kind of like what would it be like? It, it, it remind. <laughs> it's like listening to a, a Tom Waits album. You're just set in this world that is just heightened grotesquery, you know, and yeah, I mean, really enjoying can... itself in all the grotesqueness. Like when Robert, when Orpats gets covered in shit, like and things like that. It's just the movie's having so much fun with how gross and weird it is. It's set in the 1890s, and you can feel the period. But you don't see anything outside of the island. You're just seeing really these two guys in this lighthouse. But you can the language, they're what they're talking about. Robert Pattinson's character talking about the death of Winslow, the when he was working in the lumber industry or whatever. Mm. Just some of their stories and the language that they use. It really evokes this sense of like late 19th century. Which, as I say, is impressive because they're not they're not showing you anything. I mean, this is a film that again it cost eleven million, and it made eighteen, so it's a, a modest success. But it's a real success in terms of what uh, Eggers was able to achieve. Yeah, for sure, and it it did it made a a, a good chunk, didn't it? Eighteen off of eleven. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, it almost double the budget for, for you know for this low budget a twenty four thing, which opened up the opportunity for. The Northman. The Northman, yeah, but he also skipped, uh, I think, like, he was going to do his version of Nosferatu, wasn't it? Apparently that's still on the table. Oh, that's not that, being taken off. I would, that, I'm, would, I would be very excited for that. I was, uh, I've just recently got a hold of Werner Herzog's uh, 1979 version, yeah, which, yeah. I again, I plan to watch at some point. Have you seen that? Nosferatu, I have seen that, yeah, the yeah. Vampire? It's good. Yeah, I, I'm in, I'm intrigued to check that out. Nosferatu. Have you watched not... much of that period of Werner Herzog? No, because it's like it's a it's an for sure it's an acquired taste, but it's worth it. I would say like that and Agira, the Wrath of God, are to me quite almost in sync with the sort of thing they're 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 the visual language that they're at. But uh, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed Nosferatu, the Vampire with a Y. Yeah, I'll check that out eventually. But So, coming back to The Northman, Robert Eggers said that this originally came about due to a meeting with Alex Skarsgård. Apparently, Skarsgård is a huge Viking fan, given that he's a, a Swedish Literally man, a Viking, and therefore, yeah. he is a Viking, much like me. I'm also a Viking. Are you a Viking? Yeah, this is a... Uh, I think I've talked about this before, but my parents used to own an antique shop yes. in the center of Edinburgh. This probably happened about 20 years ago or maybe even more, but my brother was working in the shop and some customer came in. I think they were from the US and saw my brother's like hunched over terrible posture. I have terrible (laughs) posture too. But like, uh, I think he said to him like, you've got Viking mannerisms. (laughs) And so... What a thing to say. It's it's a a great, a great opening gambit to any conversation, (laughs) certainly with like a shop assistant. So I've just taken that. That's facts. I am a Viking. I'm descended from Vikings. That's awesome. And that's why I partake in, in all the Viking, all the Viking uh, stuff. So you must. I'm, I'm a real Viking. So you go around the place uh, stealing ladies. 
Yeah, why not? That's, <laughs> uh, that's all. That's all fine. Is get consent first, but yeah. But yeah, so that came about with Alexander Skarsgård, and then uh, Eggers said that he was able to basically take this. Th- there was a sort of Viking zeitgeist going on with, with the Viking TV series. Did you watch any of that? Uh, I watched like one episode. I couldn't get into it, but I'm a big fan of uh, The Last Kingdom. I like that a lot. Ooh, yeah. I haven't watched any of these, but I like the... Con- Again, it's like most people, they like the concept of them. There was also all the Thor and Marvel stuff had had was out. In terms of games, there's God of War and Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which this film feels quite like that. It's like a well-written Ubisoft game, <laughs> if there was such a thing. There's a pretty cool structure to it, it and it reminded me of exactly what is missing from... Um, you ever see that uh, Nicholas Winding Refn film, Valhalla Rising? No, that's a one that I... That's got almost no dialogue, right? Don't bother. It's all these Scottish actors. There's a ton of Scottish people in that. I think it's filmed in Scotland. And when I I, I looked at it and went like, eh, I like the idea of it, but oh, it looks like hard work. It's very hard work. I don't bother. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, a, so it's I think it's less than 90 minutes and feels about three hours. From one of the Sean Baker interviews that I listened to last week, Sean Baker said that like around 15 million if in kind of indie films in Hollywood is the upper ceiling in terms of where you can guarantee final cut. Hmm. And so for Eggers, this budget 60, was originally 65 and then it ballooned up to possibly 90 million. Oh, okay. And so Eggers didn't have final cut on this one, but I really liked this. Yeah, and I think I like it a lot. how commercial it is Helps. is really impressive. Yeah, I like it a lot. I think the suits were right. I think the studio guy right, but it's unfortunately this has bombed horribly. Has it? It's only made uh, as, right now worldwide. It's grossed thirty million. Ah, but I mean, it's only been out a week, man. The numbers are not good. It, it didn't make the debut that they wanted. Uh, it, it'll make sucks. money back eventually, I'm sure. Mm. But with Hollywood accounting, who knows? Yeah, indeed. So this, you know, Eggers might not get another ch- chance like this, but also. I don't know that he cares. I think he'll be quite happy to go back to like 15 million A24 yeah. vehicles. It feels like a film that could make a shit ton of money, to be honest, because... I know, that's a, that's a surprising thing. I mean, it, you think of other things like Gladiator or Braveheart. Mm. Uh, Eggers talked about both of those films. He said he liked Gladiator. He's like, Gladiator's a good film, but he felt the soundtrack, even back in the day, fell out of place. Ah, fuck but, off. Well, one of, my, uh, well, one of my favorite scores ever. <laughs> I, I know, I know you're, I know you're a fan. And what he said about Braveheart, he said like, yeah, I like Braveheart when I was a kid. You know, when I was growing up. But Fair. I'm not a child anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's very outspoken about the quality of films. Really, he doesn't pull any punches. Oh, yet. I gotta listen to some more interviews with this fella. Yeah, I definitely recommend his his Mark Maron episode WTF. It's uh, it's worth listening to. Mm. And what are some films that Robert Edgars really likes? Uh, Twilight. He's a big fan of that. Thinks that's great. <laughs> no, he he said that he that's one where he said like you know the Twilight films are shit. <laughs> it's not really a controversial opinion to voice. He is like the the kind of archetypal artist slash film snob in nice. a way that is too much for me. Where I'm like, yeah, yeah. Listen, I like watching Marvel shit and stuff like that. But he's very much like he's into like Soviet dramas and stuff like that. <laughs> see this is it. like uh, like i'm totally like, i'm 
a very similar type of film viewer to you. And I hear about somebody like Robert Eggers, and I'm like, oh man, I'd love to be like that. But uh, I don't know if you heard, but uh, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are coming back. Uh, so yeah, bye. I, I don't want to be like that. <laughs> but I love. So yeah, he's I into, love, the, he's I love into his that movies. Love your movies, Robbie. Yeah, because he's obviously going to listen to this. Him and Sean Baker will be sitting around together <laughs> listening to this, high-fiving each other. But yeah, The Northman, it's co-written with Sean. Sean. Sean, yeah. Who's the Icelandic poet and novelist, a childhood friend of Björk. Yes. He wrote lyrics for her early solo work, and uh, she, of course, appears in the film as a, a seeress. Yes. And did you, have it's you heard of how that worked out? She was eating shoes somewhere, and then <laughs> she just accidentally wandered onto set dressed like that. And this was just, they just turned on the camera, and that was what she said, right? And she was just talking. No, I believe that he was in, him and his wife. And I can say that because I'm a Viking. Go ahead. Yes. Him and his wife were, Robert Edgars and his wife were invited to um, Iceland by, a, by, I don't know, some guy. I can not too hot on those particular details, but he took them for lunch. Well, they went to a cabin and ate dinner with Bjork. And Bjork spoke about this guy. Bjork, sorry, brought along this fella Sean, and apparently had just because she had she had contacted Eggers previously to say that she was a fan of his films. Because you know when you're as big as Bjork. By the way, just to give a moment just to how crazy it is that somebody as weird and arty as Bjork is an international megastar. But anyway, there you go. And she just kind of match-made them, and they hit it off, decided to write this together, and then, yeah, they ended up writing that part for Bjork naturally because they were just like, yeah, yeah, fuck it, I'll do that. And she hadn't acted since Dancer in the Dark, I believe. As she did, because she had a a bad time on that. Yeah, yeah, uh, she got I guess Lars von Trier has been drug over the coals on that one. He does seem like the worst. He is a he is like a big shite bag who's like I have these horrible impulses and I'm gonna make films about them mm. and you're just gonna watch you're gonna them watch them and, and like them because they're arty. Yeah. So yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about the cast. Obviously, Alex Skarsgård as as Amleth. What did you think about his beautiful, beautiful body? Uh, Alexander Skarsgård. Um, I do think he's a hot piece of ass. But- Almost too much, like ridiculously so. And I also just think he's he's interesting looking. He's not like like you know he is scary looking as well, which is why he made such a good like like he's he's played more he's definitely played more villains than heroes at this stage. I'd say. Um, yeah, he was in the the awful adaptation of The Stand from last year. Yes, and but I did think he was well cast in that role. Sure. Yeah, he was. He was one. Definitely. Of, or like in Randall. Uh, Randall Flag. Yeah. Or like in Big Little Lies, he's a very effective fucking monster have not seen it oh wow but i hear what the look ladies love it yeah yeah the the, the gals like it all right yeah mm. which is weird yeah, because my, maybe I'll... my favorite like you've said before your favorite genres of, of stuff is like a post-apocalyptic history revision sci-fi mm-hmm. that kind of thing and like my favorite are probably whatever like really alienates the female members of the audience that's what <laughs> like i love that so this is almost that but it's not quite this could be that Skarsgård for me is uh, Brad Iceman Colbert from Generation Kill. Oh, That's yeah. peak Skarsgård. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Nothing great at that, actually. That. Apart from that, his other best performance is Mikus in Zoolander, who dies in the tragic uh, petrol fight. Oh, is he in the petrol fight? I didn't know that. Yeah, because Scar- Alexander Skarsgård, obviously, he's the son of Stellan Skarsgård, yes. the, 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 the great actor. Alexander Skarsgård started off as a, as a model. 
and that's how he uh, he ended up in Zoolander. How many brothers does he have doing acting uh, too? It's like seventeen. Yeah. And actually, uh, Bill Skarsgård was supposed to be in this film. He dropped out. It's a shame, actually, because I think he would have been good. He was supposed to play Thorier, the proud Fjolnir's elder son, Amleth's cousin. But their role ended up going to Gustav Lind, who a lot of the time when I was watching this film, because it's one of those things where everyone's got big beards and they're all dirty, Mm. most of the time I was going like, who the fuck is that? And this guy, Gustav Lind, I really don't know him at all, but... He took over from Bill Skarsgård, and it's a shame because I think that would have been really interesting to have the Skarsgård yeah. brothers as cousins. I mean, everyone been, uh, like there's a there's you know inbreeding doesn't seem to be much of an issue here. The other person that really shocked me that I didn't recognize at all, I I was like Clash Bang, Clash Bang during the film. Yeah, I had no idea that he was in it. Yeah, because I didn't look at the cast list. I think you were. You were more into following this film and trailers and stuff like that. Like I didn't know anything about this before watching it, and you didn't and recognize I spent him the whole time. No, I was like, "That's not, that's not the guy from the square." What are you talking about? Is is that the guy who Christian pushed a young boy down the the step the stairs and who drove around in his car listening to that? Oh to yeah, banging song on the All radio. All the banging tunes. Yeah, yeah. God, I would watch the square again, man. Just even for that one scene. I'd be up for watching The Square just because that was the first episode and it feels like a million years ago. It does, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a long time gone. Nicole Kidman is Queen Gudrun. Yes. What about her? What She's about her? My God. What, how fucking old is Nicole Kidman? She is 54 years old. 54 years young. God damn, she looks good. She does indeed. She's doing all right. She certainly looks better than in Destroyer. Yes, which I did not care which, for. Uh, no, that was not peak kid man. Uh, what else have I seen Nicole Kidman in recently where I thought she was very good? Tell me. Was it something for this? Yeah, I think so. I'm going to go back. I'm just having a quick look to check. It's not TV, I can tell you that. No, because I'm going back and now I'm looking at her filmography and I can't find it. It wasn't Paddington. What <laughs> would it have been? She is good know. in Paddington. Maybe though. I'm just talking shit. But every, yeah, everyone's good in Paddington. Good. Yeah, no, I'm talking shit. Birth, though, of course, she's, she's nice. She's on form there. Maybe it was Destroyer I was thinking about. She was good in Destroyer. She was. I w- it's just the film. It's just not really a, yeah, not a great movie. Yeah, but no, she's great. She's certainly on top form. Who else do we have? Ethan Cox. Old <laughs> Ethan Hawke. Ethan Cox, yes, indeed. Um, Ethan Farty. He's become, he, as his career progresses, I find he's getting just more interesting and wild and... I like Ethan well, he, more now than I ever did. But he's 51. He's certainly not the uh, sort of annoying meeting a girl in a European city. <laughs> he's he's lost a, all of that kind of like reality bites and all the mm. all this stuff from the 90s of just all these films where he was like this good looking boyish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really vul- like vulnerable boyish. No, it's just charm that intense he, he kept and he creepy. hung on to. But this is the real uh, like Ethan Hawke is Ethan Hawke is like back, baby. This is the the Ethan Hawke sense. Yeah, he's he's doing Moon Knight, which I'm waiting until the final episode drops to watch all of him in one sitting. Basically, I've never seen yeah, him in any of the before films. Oh, I've seen all three of them. I mean, has I, the moment passed? Just... Do you think? No, because. The first one you can appreciate, but the the naivety of the characters 
is so funny. Like if you're, you know, of a certain age now, you look back at it and you're like, God, I remember when I was a complete fanny. <laughs> and I still am, but <laughs> for different reasons now. So I look back at those things and go like, God, I was such a penis. See, cause I- and then the, s- go on. the second one, the second film is like, it really mirrors life. That's why they work so well. The second film is sort of early 30s. Maybe you're divorced. You know, that's coming mm. up for you. <laughs> and uh, you know, maybe you've been in a few relationships and you're trying to make it work. And then the third film is like, nah, I, th- I think the third film is closer to where you are. You're somewhere between the second and third films. So you would, you, I think you would really appreciate them. I might give them a, be- a, a put, blast. Put them up for the toss. I want to watch all three of them and talk about it. Hell yeah. Great. All right. That's coming That'd up. So I promise. All right. When Linklater is on form, I think he's possibly the most like he can join Sean Baker as just being intensely interesting. He's like I said, because I gave out about one of his films last week. Even his failures are are interesting. I'm not a fan of Waking Life at all. I I hate it. Uh, I would go as far yeah. as to say, but I don't know why I never got really around to those. I do, I do think there's something about the idea of them that seems a bit like, ugh. but that said. You could definitely level that at Boyhood, and I rewatched Boyhood last year, and that is still fucking phenomenal. That film, that's an incredible way to spend three hours. That's peak cinema, like what he achieved with that film. Um, so yeah, I should give it a go. They'll be on uh, on a future toss to round out the cast. Anya Taylor Joy, of course, was Olga of the Birch Forest, a Slavic sorceress. Mm. I watched this film here in Croatia, and when she was. She's supposedly speaking ancient Ukrainian, and because it's a Slavic language, the Croatian subtitles matched up like roughly about 50 to 75% of what she was saying. Don't know what any of it fucking means. This was one problem for me. I was a little concerned that people would be not speaking English and I would be left reading Croatian subtitles. But it was fine, really, wasn't uh, it? it, Yeah, it was fine. There's like one or two phrases and you can figure out what's going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, she's sad or she's angry or some shit. Yeah, that's right. I, I could, I could read that even with my high levels of autism. It's probably I more difficult to understand Bjork even when she's speaking English because she's just a creature. That was okay. <laughs> I wasn't, too, I wasn't too bad. Even, even having some subtitles, even if they're in a language that you don't speak, it, it helped me focus on, on, uh, on like a lot of what people were saying. It was fine. And you, Taylor Joy, she's good. She's playing like a, I don't know, almost thankless role in a way. Yeah, that's probably fair. Bjork is fine. She's playing Bjork. Willem Dafoe is the fool with his big sort of weird floppy fake penis thing. (laughs) Yeah. It's fun. (laughs) That was fun. He got that off of uh, Simon Rex. He must have, yeah. He probably had it in storage. And Finchie, obviously. Finchie's in there for a second. Kate Kate Dickey's in it, the the most Scottish-looking woman alive. She plays Haldora the Picked. Yes, she's the bottom bitch. So yeah, maybe we should move into the plot. Let's do it. It is an incredibly simple plot, which is something that I appreciated, actually. Mm. I I like just how it was, again, it was like very energetic and you're whisked through it, but you know exactly where it's going and what's happening and it all makes sense. It was nice and simple. Yes. Keep it simple. Beautiful imagery, simple plot. Yeah, goddamn. So much going on in his shots. He's, and he's such a meticulous filmmaker. And like he's only getting better, I find I found. Particularly mm-hmm. like the opening sequence in this and the action scene from way like a few years later, I thought were phenomenal bits of work, really. Just such 
class set pieces. What was your cinema experience, by the way? Because you've been twice. Did you go to Phenomena? I went to Phenomena the first time. I went to um, Yelmo the second. I went to this. There's only like one cinema here in Rijeka in Croatia. And I booked my tickets online. I looked at the the lettering of the rows and they're lettered A to I. So I said, okay, I'm going to go in row I in the back corner. And when I get to the fucking screen, A is at the back and I is at the front. So you're at the front. What kind of... What kind of backwards oh, ass thinking is that? Have you ever heard of anything like that where A is the back? Are they in the EU? They are. Well, Not in the Schengen zone. They, they are EU members. Uh, I don't should know. should be expelled. I, yeah, we'd carry on like that. Come on, man. The EU is supposed to be well, the luckily, end of all that backwards shit. Luckily, because the Northman bombed, uh, <laughs> it was only half full. So I was able to go and uh, take up a seat in a more reasonable viewing position. I don't know. Have Sweet. You, why would anyone... St- choose to sit in the front row and in the front row to the side do people if the screening's close to sold out i suppose yeah i would rather not go i remember the first ever time i went to phenomena because they don't allow you to choose your seats you just uh, and there's queues i was going to see um the revenant so i just arrived like five minutes before the movie was due to start yeah and i have had to sit up the front like with my neck all crazy and shit yeah not good well i remember when we went to see the hateful eight roadshow we were sort of in a similar position mm. of not ideal, let's say. But yeah, anyway, apart from that, I, I really enjoyed it. It's another film that needs to be seen in the cinema, I think. I don't think that the small screen... It's going to be fine on the small screen, but it's just not going to do it justice, mm. which is a chame. So for the plot of The Northman, in AD 895 or 895 or 895... King Irvindil, War Raven. <laughs> We're doing that. <laughs> returns. To, I'm going to have to do these. I'm sorry. That's the correct pronunciation and inflection. Returns to his kingdom on the island of Hrafni. Hrafnsi. After his overseas conquest and is reunited with his wife, Queen Gudrun, and his son and heir, Prince Amleth. To prepare Amleth to one day be king, the two participate in a spiritual ceremony overseen by Arvindil's jester, Hymir. That whole section when um, the the king is returning and uh, th- them climbing up the hills on the horses to get back into the into the fortress. That was really cool. I think I think I would say there's a visual reference to um, Agira, the Wrath of God, the Werner Herzog film, and that's opening scene. And then also, yeah, the the basically trippy scene with William Defoe. Um, I thought was yeah, that's pretty bitching, D- particularly to I see on a big screen. You weren't a fan. No, because I don't the bar the the burping fartiness of it. I don't know. I maybe it was again. It's like at that point I didn't feel secure in the story. Okay, I, well, I wasn't like on board to be like, oh, okay. Like uh, straight after that, once uh, Clash Clash Bang starts murdering people after he kills uh, Ethan Ethan Hawke. At that point, I was on board and I could I could get into. I feel like in a second viewing, I would be more appreciative of that scene but the first time i was like fucking the farting and the burping really <laughs> really turned me off i was actually Isn't at a i was at the, the second time i went to see it i was actually at a fart along screening so whenever oh, whenever nice. they fart in the film everyone was farting and yeah it was fun i feel like the first one you went to knowing the clientele of uh, phenomena the nerd cinema yes. there must have been all kinds of emissions and body odors uh, all throughout the screen. Ah, that's the that's the dilemma you uh, you I often face when I go it's to a, authenticity when I go to a cinema like phenomena. Like I remember one time, like I remember when I went to see Sorcerer in the cinema there, and it was like an early screening on a Saturday of Sorcerer, 
and uh, went with um, <laughs> went with uh, Belen, and uh, she should, like because at this point I had been to a bunch of you know early screenings of old movies in Phenomena. Belen's there looking around at the sort of creatures that go to see fucking Sorcerer at eleven <laughs> o'clock on a Saturday, and she's just there. Is this the sort of people you're you're? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, these are my peeps now. Just awful yokes. It's the I've, I've made. Well, I'll tell you, I've made my bed and I will fart it. Fair play. In Croatia, people don't go to the cinema by themselves. Oh. Uh, society hasn't advanced to that antisocial level that we have in in Western Europe. So mainly, people were looking at me like, "What is this fucking leopard doing <laughs> in our screen?" <laughs> and I was like, "I'm from the future. You might not like this, but your kids will love it. Uh, like, They'll love going to the cinema by themselves." This, is, but this is the thing: is like what, like what I always say to people, because it's just a stigma they have in their head. And I just, just try it, just once. It's better. Get to be it on is. your on your own. I don't understand. Going to the cinema should not be a group activity. No, it's so much it's better a place when where you, you have to shut own. the fuck up. You can talk to people afterwards. It's also I remember the one thing that I took uh, from the greatest TV show ever made, Dawson's Creek. Hell yeah! One of the characters says, "Going on a," he says to Dawson, "Don't take your, don't take Joey or whatever on a date to the cinema." Because it's terrible because you can't look at each other for two hours and you can't talk and you just have to watch the film. Unless you do like a popcorn thing of like putting your knob into the popcorn. Well, uh, I, but like I mean, for me, that's, the palm. But, that, but, but for me, that's especially a, and a I, solo and I tried cinema. That. I tried that uh, in the North, man. <laughs> <laughs> I got salty popcorn. It was a terrible mistake. Lessons were learned and I won't be doing that again, but... <laughs> But it's true. It's like, it should be a solo activity. You should go in. You should be silent. You should not talk to anyone. You shouldn't look at anyone. You should look directly ahead at the screen and then file out in silence and go back to put your headphones on and get back onto the streets and not interact with anyone for the rest of your life. That's it exactly. As it should be. Like a normal country. I'm just, I'm just thinking about like <laughs> doing the popcorn knob thing <laughs> in the cinema on your own. Well, by yourself, <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> it's very liberating. <laughs> it's very tempting. Oh my god! I'm... Well, the, the thing is, I'm not going to pay for that popcorn, so I'd have to bring my own. <laughs> and then there's this that. tension every time that you know you take a piece of popcorn. It's like, oh, is there a knob? Ooh. No, not yet. <laughs> You think you might know us, but anyway. <laughs> All right, I'm done. I'm glad I'm done. that has tickled you so much. Uh, <laughs> it did. But yes, I'm the fully next... with you. I bring a book. I bring headphones. Don't talk to me. Don't yeah. look at me. The next morning, masked warriors led by Arvindil's brother Fjolnir ambush and murder the king. After seeing his village massacred and his mother taken away screaming by his uncle, Amleth flees by boat, swearing to avenge his father. Save his mother and kill Fjolnir. Yes, yeah, that's awesome. What this is, this is, this is, uh, it's just following that famous maxim that revenge, much like Gaspacho, is sickening. <laughs> and so, uh, he waits a few years. He's found, uh, Amleth is found by a band of Vikings and raised among them as a berserker. Yes, do would you like to s- make him fuck berserker? <laughs> Nice crisp uh, Clerks 1 reference <laughs> yes. for you there, folks. Yeah, I like to reference things from 30 years ago. Years later, after an attack in the land of the Rus, 
Amleth encounters a seeress in the temple of Zvet Zvetordvit. First of all, to pause before, on, on before the seeress. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, we skipped over a huge chunk of exciting action. There. That uh, yeah, that sequence where they attack the fort is, and it's done in one shot. I think is fucking fantastic. Just a big nudie uh, Skarsgård, Amleth actually, legging it towards the wall, climbing it with an axe and putting catching a spear. Those chucks. Oh out, yeah, right? that's awesome. And chucks it right back, and then that's what my people do. And then <laughs> fight their way through the fort, and then you've got this wonderful sequence where they're herding all the villagers into this building, and the camera is just swooping oh, around, yeah. and you're seeing all the misery of like you know the 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 dark ages, I suppose you'd call this. Is this the dark ages? The eight hundred? I don't know. Anyway, you're talking to the wrong guy. I have no idea. <laughs> But just all the misery, and then eventually it swoops around and somebody's setting that building on fire and there's just a bunch of, you know, civilians in there that they're all going to murder, but I suppose that's what Vikings did, right? Years later, after an attack in the land of the Rus, Amleth encounters a seeress in the temple of Svetovit. The seeress predicts that Amleth will soon take revenge on Fjolnir and that his path is intertwined with a maiden king. Amleth finds out that Fjolnir was overthrown by Harold of Norway and lives in exile in Iceland. Posing as a slave, Amleth sneaks aboard a ship headed to Iceland. On the ship, he encounters a Slavic slave, a Slavic slave, named Olga, who claims to be a sorceress. Upon arrival, Amleth and the rest of the slaves are taken to Fjolnir's farm, where it is revealed that Gudrun, now Fjolnir's wife, has borne him a son, Gunnar. Is there any part of you as the viewer that thinks that his mother was taken against her will? Is there any part of you, or is it just that this story is so well known? There's like, I don't feel like there's any part of, I mean, okay, no. it turns out that she's more of a shite bag than that, but, or, or maybe, I mean, there's still, I mean, she is horribly weird, but like, it, it is quite nuanced, but even as a viewer, it doesn't feel like that's going to be a big reveal. Like, I feel like you're watching it going like, what? yeah, he's going to get his, his mother's eventually going to turn around and go like, what the fuck are you doing? What's interesting is Fjolnir actually seems like a, kind of a top dude yeah i mean i don't think he feels like a villain brother, and then right well yeah he certainly is portrayed as a as a real nuanced character and then nicole kidman see she says yeah i was taken as a fucking whore slave what do you want from me <laughs> yeah you know i don't know i thought that, yeah that's I, right she's she's got the little slave mark yeah on yeah her. i thought that was um just a kind of uh, an in- an interesting little bit of deconstruction right in the middle of it there. But, the- <laughs> you know, she's like, yeah, I was taken as fucking whore slave, man. I didn't like your dad at all. And fucking class bang treats me no- much nicer. And then yeah, fucking... He, he manages a fucking art gallery. Yeah, there you go. Stockholm. And then fucking... But like, you know, Alexander Skarsgård, you know, he has to... <laughs> His basic answer is, look, he's like, listen, lady, I'm a fucking Viking vengeance guy. What do you want from me? I'm yeah, going to kill you. you all the stuff I've done? You've seen all the things? But then again, you see, like, the star of the film is from the perspective of a child who yeah. doesn't understand that maybe, you know, Ethan Hawke is a big whiny shite bag, mm. like in films of the 90s. The secret, he doesn't know the early Ethan Hawke. He hasn't watched Reality Bites or maybe he, you know, he hasn't seen... Things like Gattaca or Dead Poets Society, that's why he hasn't got a full picture of his father. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Yeah, exactly. There's some, I think there's something to be said for Fjolnir. Uh, he's also, there's like religion comes into it a little bit, rejection of Christianity. Is it Fjolnir who's talking about like, they worship a guy 
nailed to a fucking cross. Yeah, yeah. Believe Who these, the fuck are these guys? These, yeah, yeah. Believe these fucking guys. That's so. I think that's how he spoke in the film. Little did he, did he realize that the Christians would actually, you know, would win within about a hundred years. Damn. To the right side of history. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's where he should have been. That's that, the uh, that's that great Louis C.K. bit where he's, he's, he says he's not religious. His kids ask him about religion. And he goes, well, there's lots of religions and they're all, you know, of equal value, but uh, the Christians are the main one. They won. And I was like, <laughs> I was like well, what? It's like, yeah, yeah. I, I, like, let me, and just to demonstrate my point, let me ask you, what year is it? <laughs> Jesus plus one, Jesus plus two. It's good. Anyway. Check out Louis C.K. Hell yeah. One night, Amleth flees the farm and encounters a he-witch who facilitates a spiritual dialogue between Amleth and the late Haimir, revealed to have been murdered by Fjolnir. He then tells Amleth about Draugr, a magical sword that can only be drawn at night or at the gates of hell. Amleth enters a mound and obtains the blade after fighting the undead mound dweller. Yeah. That feels like a very gamey section. It reminds me of Definitely. God of War a little bit. And God of Go War and get has this all thing. These baddies called Draugrs that are like dead zombie monstery things. Uh yeah, I, I, this section is quite go, yeah, go here, do that, do the mission. The next day, Amleth is selected to compete in a game of Nyatlikur or hurling against another It's farm. quite similar to hurling, yes. That's why I assumed it was. I was just like, that's just that's just Irish people having fun. The game turns violent and Gunnar is almost killed after running into the game, but Amleth saves him. That's a, that is a fun sequence. I do enjoy seeing people getting fucked up by Skarsgård and the big guy on the other team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They take some battering. And then that's got that little... Um, it's basically the moment from Wuthering Heights where... Um, oh, I can't remember the name of the character, but Heathcliff fucking hates him. And then he's like a drunken lunatic and he, he, he throws his son off the stairs and just out of instinct, uh, Heathcliff catches the kid and he, he, Heathcliff's like, ah, fuck, <laughs> I hate this guy. I could have let his son die. So he's kind of sickened with that. So yeah, so Amleth saves Gunnar and as a reward, Fjolnir's eldest and adult son, Thorir, allows Amleth to claim Olga as his wife to be his property. Nice. As it should be. Yes, then they get... And that's the end, and then he lives happily ever after. That would be a good ending. I would like that. With his lady slave. During the evening celebrations, Amleth and Olga make love. They promise to work together to overcome Fjolnir and his men. Mm. Over the following nights, Amleth kills several of Fjolnir's men, and Olga mixes the men's food with psychedelic mushrooms. I liked that sequence. I, yeah, that was fun to see them all tripping, and then just... uh, Amleth's going around just stabbing them up. Yeah, yeah. Or no, they start committing suicide, right? They're like stabbing themselves. All in the sorts throat. of mad shit. But I just like the shenanigans of him taking secret revenge on the uh, on the different people. It's kind of like uh, Home Alone, but outside. He says that at one point. He does say like, "I'm going to go Macaulay Culkin on their asses." Yeah. I believe is a direct quote from Amleth. He does say something like, "I'm going to make their lives hell." Yeah, he does. I'm not going to kill them. Don't know what that voice is. It's very, very like the, the 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 voice of Uhtred from The Last Kingdom, actually. You sounded scared. Is that what that yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. All right, that's good. The ensuing chaos allows Amleth to enter Fjolnir's house. He meets his mother, Gudrun, who reveals that she was originally taken into slavery and that Amleth's conception was the result of rape. She tries to seduce Amleth while also revealing that she begged Fjolnir to kill Arvindil and Amleth. An enraged Amleth leaves, kills Thorir in his sleep, and steals his heart. That's pretty ballin'. I didn't like that Thorir guy. 
as I said, if it was Bill Skarsgård, I think I would have been more on board. Mm. But the guy they cast just looked like a bit of an arsehole. I kind of wanted to see his heart get cut out. Win-win for Andy. Yeah, he had a bad face. I don't like him. After the discovery of Thorir's body, Gudrun reveals Amleth's true identity to Fjolnir. Fjolnir threatens to kill Olga for assisting Amleth, but Amleth reveals himself and offers to trade Olga's life for Thorir's heart. After a severe beating, Amleth is released from his restraints by a flock of ravens. That's pretty cool too. I liked that. Olga rescues Amleth from the farm and the two escape, planning to go to Amleth's relatives in Orkney. He's went, she sent his kids to Scotland. Departing Iceland by boat, Amleth has a vision and discovers that she is pregnant with twins, one of whom will become the maiden king prophesied by the seeress. Feeling that his children will never be safe, Amleth decides to finally kill his uncle and jumps overboard despite Olga's pleas for him to remain with her. Now, this moment is like so Hollywood that one gets the feeling of Robert Eggers railing against it and the studio going, no, we're doing And But I loved it. I thought that was an awesome moment where he jumps off the boat. And I, you know he's going to die at that point as well. You just know. Yeah, that brought to mind things like Last of the Mohicans and yeah. stuff like that. I did, and yeah, I'm on board. I'm like, yes, Stay he alive. needs to go back. He needs to go back and have a, a fucking jewel on the top of a of a volcano. Hell yeah. The gates that's of what hell. Needs to happen. And that's what happens. Back at the farm, Amleth frees the slaves and kills most of Fjolnir's men. While searching for Fjolnir, Amleth is attacked by Gudrun and kills her. Bye, mummy. Gunnar also attacks Amleth, stabbing him repeatedly in the back before Amleth accidentally kills him. Sorry, Gunnar. Fjolnir, discovering his wife and son dead, tells Amleth to meet him at the gates of hell, the volcano Hekla in Iceland, to resolve the conflict via Holmgang, which is just a duel, basically. At the volcano, Amleth and Fjolnir engage in a fierce sword fight. Fjolnir is decapitated, but Amleth is fatally wounded at the mm. same time. Luckily, though, Amleth is picked up and is placed into a type of life support system, which is a black suit. And he is taken away by the Emperor to begin cleansing the universe <laughs> of Jedi. Because <laughs> that's what nice. this is. It's nice. Return of Revenge of the it Sith. It is Revenge of the Sith, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which I have yeah, been so considering they both die. watching again. I would not. Just for the fact of when Darth Vader goes, no, <laughs> is enough to put me off ever watching that again. As Amleth lies dying, he has a future vision of Olga embracing their twin children before a Valkyrie appears to carry him to Valhalla. Hell yeah. He then also dreams of his future progeny recording a podcast in Croatia. <laughs> the end. I am the chosen one. The end. Uh, Eggers apparently cut something that was cut or um, an idea that never came to fruition was there was supposed to be more Valkyries. Hmm, okay. More Valkyrie stuff, more... I like the Valkyries, but it did kind of bring to mind some of the Thor marvel stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I still uh, like it. Yeah, I, I, I thought they looked really cool in the movie. And to be yeah. honest, I think I think Edgar's... I think Edgar's... Eggers is good at handling the supernatural, actually. I don't think it, it jars too much with what he does. No. Like the Cirrus, the Bjork scene yeah, you is excellent what's in going this, on. you know? And the Mound Dweller scene, I enjoyed that too. All right, well... That's it for good old Robert Eggies. I'm sure we'll catch up with him again whenever he does his next thing. Indeed. Coming up next time, we're going to be talking about two classic films from the 1970s, Last Tango in Paris and The Passenger. I had to flick through The Passenger. I did not know this, but it's got scenes filmed in Barcelona. Yeah, I saw that. 
yeah, it looks pretty. It's insane to see Jack Nicholson going up the Ramblers. Uh, it should be fun to check that out. And then I guess in two weeks' time, uh, one obvious choice is uh, Doctor Strange. Yeah, I was I was going to suggest that we might as well Benedict Cumberbatches. Uh, and yeah, actually, it'll be interesting because you'll be going into it with the eyes of having you know having noticed that Spider Man. No Way Home is actually, you know, completely it, constructed from fan service. Good. Yes. Um, and this looks like it's going further down that route, or maybe it's not. I'm not sure. I know people who think uh, that they're just that this is it. They're just going to drop the mutants into the MCU, and and all of that's just going to be created in this movie. Have you heard the rumors as well of Daniel Radcliffe as Wolverine? No, yeah. I don't know how I feel about that yet. The The one thing to be said for Doctor Strange is that it's Sam Raimi's it's Sam return Raimi, yeah. to, to directing Marvel. And then also the screenwriter is Michael Waldron, who, of course, was the yeah. the showrunner on Loki. So Yeah, I'd say that. We'll, we'll do that, won't we? Yeah, why not? The Northman rocks. Go see it, people. Go see The Northman because it has, as I said, it's, it's flopping. So it may be word of mouth, mm. who knows? But uh, either way, it's if you get the opportunity to see this, if you've listened this far and you haven't seen the film, you're insane. Yeah, you're, first you're and a foremost. psychopath. But I uh, we appreciate you. But if you if you go see it, again, I might go and see it again. Mm. Even though it's all it's got bits that are in foreign, I might still go and see it. <laughs> all right, I got to go be a husband and a father. All right, good night and good luck. Go I need to go to the cinema on my own. Goodbye. Yay. <laughs> <laughs>